Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. This is God's word. You may be seated. What is the most famous sermon ever preached? I don't know that there's an actual answer to that question. Perhaps the Lord only knows. But we could give a few guesses, right? Some might guess uh, a more recent historical sermon in context of history by someone like Billy Graham, right? The Crusades, preaching across the globe from nation to nation, preaching the gospel. Or we might guess something a little older, maybe Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, wrote many books on preaching, inspired pastors for generations, uh, was um, um, uh, an iconic preacher in recent years and generations. Maybe we leave the States and we go uh, to Europe and we meet a man named Charles Spurgeon, who in London had thousands gathering to his church weekly to hear him preach the Bible. Surely some of these men would have coined the most famous sermon. And surely it would be a topic about love or a topic of hope and eternal life or a topic about the forgiveness of sins or the cross and the resurrection. But arguably the most famous sermon ever preached wasn't by any of these or about any of these topics. On July 8, 1741, a small Congregationalist church in Enfield, Connecticut gathered for worship on the Lord's Day. The people were described by historians as thoughtless and vain showing no particular interest in the things of God, hardly conducting themselves in common decency. Now, in this time, this was about 10 years after the first great awakening had began in the States. Churches that just a year ago were covered in dust and empty pews were now brimming with life, and people were repenting and coming to the gospel and being saved, and churches were blowing up. But nothing was happening at Enfield. So this Sunday, their pastor, Jonathan Edwards, began to preach a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which says, Moses' song of God's judgment, their foot shall slide in due time. Their foot shall slide in due time. This verse is concerning the inevitable judgment Israel would face for their sin and rebellion against God. This was actually a sermon he'd already written many years ago at a home church in Massachusetts, but it was not really remembered when he preached it the first time. This was the second time he preached it, and some say he was not even supposed to preach that day, but this was a last-minute thing that he maybe had in, you know, a pinch uh, kind of thing, a back-pocket sermon. The title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This was a sermon that he did not get to finish. The sermon began in painful silence, with an awareness of the weight of hell 
that was fresh upon the wayward congregation. By the end of the sermon, the moaning and weeping was so loud and intrusive that Edwards stopped preaching and went down to minister to those who were sobbing violently in front of him. I read this sermon for the first time this week. You can read it online in about 15 minutes. If you like the Old English, or if you can, if you can read the Old English, he speaks of the reality of hell with clear and sobering imagery and that all man is deserving of wrath and there is nothing that we can do to stop it. One of the most um, quoted lines from that sermon is this one. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. There's nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. In other words, the only reason that any man on earth is not flung into hell immediately is because the pleasure of God is preventing it. It's not so much that he is sending them, but the full weight of wrath is already on top of them, and it's just the pleasure of God like a thin sheet underneath them. And the moment he lets it go, all men would perish. Edwards did tell them about mercy. He did tell them about Jesus. And we're going to hear of that good news today too, but there's no good news without the bad news. And we can't even celebrate Easter, really. I wasn't really counting this as an Easter sermon, but it kind of is, right? Um, Easter is about God's judgment. It's about the resurrection. It's about God raising his son from the dead, as this very passage says. But it's also about wrath that we all faced and a substitute that was given for the wrath that remained on us. Paul, standing at the top of the Oropagus, had the boldness to preach the exclusivity of the one true God to these wealthy pagan philosophers. Last week was kind of the good stuff. We found out that the Lord is not so far after all. The unknowable God is indeed knowable. He has revealed himself. We can know things about him. He, he, he desires to be near us and to know us. That's good news. That's cause for rejoicing. But it also was cause for us to reflect and think about what this God must then know. If he knows us, and he knows me to the core, and he has seen everything that I've ever done, he knows that I have not been worshiping him. He knows the worst thing that we've ever done. He knows that the core of our soul, the darkest corners of our hearts, and the good news of the revelation of God quickly becomes a fearful awareness that the judge of all the earth knows the real us. Which is why Paul immediately tells them that God is commanding them to repent because he is coming to judge the world in righteousness. That's the phrase that has uh, grabbed hold of me this week, and I hope it will grab hold of you today as well. Deuteronomy 32 says, Their foot shall slide in due time. So we're going to be talking about the judgment day this morning. And it's such a brief passage, but there are major implications for the judgment day that awaits every soul. And I don't think it would be uh, wise of me as your pastor to just skip over it too quickly. This is huge. It's, this has a lot of heavy stuff. And I just want to give you a heads up, this is heavy. Right? Kids, you know, I mean, this is this is hard for us to adults as well to, to think through sometimes. And it's not something we enjoy talking about. And I just want you to know I still love you. <laughs> and uh, Jesus still loves you. 
and we'll, we'll be okay. We'll get through this. Um, but if you need counseling after, uh, I'll, I'll help you out with that too. So hell is real. Let's talk about it. Um, there's at least five, six characteristics about the judgment of God that we see in just these few short verses. And the first one is this, that God's judgment is divine. God's judgment is divine. Now Paul, in front of the Oropagus and there in Athens, had been working hard to show them that all of their idolatry was worthless, and they had not been worshiping the one true God. The primary difference between those idols that they had made and had been worshiping versus the one true God is something called divinity. He says in verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. When Paul looked around in Athens, this is all he saw, gold, silver, and stone, the worship of these things that they had created out of their own imagination. So every day in the synagogue and in the marketplace, Paul was reasoning with them, provoked because of the idols, <clears throat> showing them the one true God and the gospel and the resurrection that Jesus offered. And that word came up over and over and over again in Paul's teaching. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Verse 18 said he was preaching Jesus as the resurrection and the resurrection, and they considered it a foreign divinity. This was something strange to them. This was a large part of what they were conversing over. Um, so they invited him to the Oropagus because they thought this was some new teaching. They had not heard of this before. In the verse 32, the response to this message says they began to mock Paul in this message because it preached resurrection from the dead. So this is what they were having a hard time with. And the idea of resurrection was the focal point because gold and silver and stone don't bring dead people back to life. It never had. In all their attempts to worship it, nobody ever came back from the dead. If this is true, that this Savior, this God, really raises people from the dead, he must be greater than all the gods we've made. How is God able to raise Jesus and his offspring from the dead? In the context here, it's because he is the giver of life. We being his offspring makes him our what? Our creator, our maker. We came from him. All life came from him. Every nation came from the first man that he created. And as our creator, he has the right to take life and give life. He has the power and authority to make void death and mortality. He is not an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's not an image or a form of anything at all. He is the real deal, the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. We are the images who reflect the Creator. He is divine. We are not. And neither are our idols. Keith Green wrote, right? Um, he is divine. We are the branches. Uh, <clears throat> took some of y'all a minute you'll catch up later uh, beloved this divine quality of God that proves his power of resurrection is also what qualifies him to judge the world he created it he gets the right to judge it nobody else gets to do that the offspring don't judge themselves he judges the offspring Every form of idolatry that we pursue and that they pursued in Athens tries to bury the divinity of God under a rug. 
If he's not divine, he's not a worthy judge. So we try to make Jesus less than God, which is one of the earliest heresies in the, in the church. Uh, if, if Jesus isn't divine, our accountability to him is not so great. We don't have to face him as judge. Or we use silly phrases like, you know, God knows my heart, which implies that we think there's something worthy of salvation in us, and God will see that in our hearts, and he'll, he'll let it pass. He'll let it slide, right? We want to judge ourselves so we can go easy on ourselves. And if we judge ourselves, we will lie all the day long. C.S. Lewis talks about this in one of his poems of himself looking into a mirror. What do you do when you look into a mirror? You dress yourself up, right? You, his name of the poem was postulating. You, you move and contort your body and your face into all kinds of ways that aren't natural because you want to look a certain way in front of others. Now, what happens if you, if you are the one who puts your soul in front of a mirror? You're going to dress up, you know, the pig, the pig in a dress, right? Like you're, you're, you're going to do whatever it takes to make your sin not look bad, to make yourself look more charming or attractive than we truly are. But God is divine, and as the only divine creator of all life and people, he is the only one qualified to judge us, and he will judge with truth, not with the contortions that we give him in a mirror. But we see immediately, even though he is divine in his judgment, he's also incredibly patient. Incredibly patient. Look at verse 30. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. What does it mean for God to overlook ignorance? Does that mean everyone before now got a free pass? That doesn't sound very judicial, right? It doesn't sound, sound very just. What this means is that God saw the great sins of the world throughout history, but he also saw his bow in the clouds. He has overlooked the days of ignorance to keep that promise to Noah. He could have judged the world in the days of the Holocaust, but he did not. He could have judged the world in the days of cruel and wicked slavery and this nasty sin that came into uh, the founding of our country, but he did not. This text does not mean that all sin won't be held accountable. It does we know that vengeance will come. We'll see that even in a minute. But it means that he saw all the terrible things that humankind, mankind, has ever done throughout all history, and he looked over them to his initial promise to Noah and to all life that he would no longer ever again destroy the earth in the way that he did in Genesis 6 and 7 on the basis of increasing corruption, which is what was going on. Paul goes on to say in the book of Romans that the cross of Christ also testified to this. Romans 3.25, God put forward him, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When Jesus died, bearing the full weight of God's wrath on the cross, it was proof that God had indeed been storing up wrath the whole time. Overlooking does not mean his wrath wasn't filling up, right? The, the cross is a proof of that. God still had wrath that needed to go somewhere. He showed his divine forbearance not just because he knew he would judge his son in place of those who believed in him by faith, but also because he knew there was a predestined time for the entire world to be finally judged by the same son that was judged in our place. He has fixed a day 
in which he will judge the world. And until that day comes, he has been practicing impeccable patience. Impeccable patience. When we think of the judgment of God, we ought to be utterly thankful for his patience. 2 Peter 3.9, we read this morning, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. The same word overlooked is used in that passage that Jay read. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Every day that passes before the judgment day comes is a day of mercy. The only reason that any of us are here today is because of the mercy of God holding us. God is not slow. He's merciful. We should be thankful. If we have new life in Jesus, we should also be patient and merciful towards others when they sin against us. Think of the impeccable patience of God and the awful rage of man. When we are sinned against, we do not respond the way he does. We respond to personal sins with anger, wrath, vengeance, all the things that Scripture tells us not to do. Again, trying to play the role of judge ourselves. We don't want to, or we want to judge ourselves and we want to judge others because we get to set the standards that way. We get to indulge in personal wrath and vengeance. And our persecution can be very painful. And our persecution is often unjustified. And I'm not advocating for silent abuse of anybody or that we should just smile and be beaten and not worry about it. I'm just saying that we should think of God's patience toward God's patience toward our sin more than we do. And when we do that, it might change the way that we look at others when they sin against us. 1 John 4.17 says, By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. If we live with patience in the way that he has been patient toward us, love displayed will only make us more confident in the day of judgment. Number three, it's imminent. Imminent. It feels ironic to sort of follow up patience with imminence, but that's the age we are in. In previous days, he overlooked ignorance, but those days are gone, or those days are at least running out. And each day that follows is a day closer to the day of judgment that has been fixed from eternity past. So now, not later, he commands all people everywhere to repent. The Lord is patient. But Paul, again in Romans, points out that his patience is not to be taken advantage of. Romans 2, verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who will judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness is not given for us to drag our feet toward repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance even faster. There are many preachers who feel they have to do the whole hellfire and brimstone thing every single week, like everybody who comes has never even heard the name of Jesus, and they are just about to go to hell immediately, and, and they preach like that on a regular basis. <clears throat> and, and the deal is, right, Raise your hand if you want to get out of hell. Who's not going to raise their hand? Right? And the, the deal is you're making somebody more afraid of hell 
than seeing the worthiness of God as Lord. There's a great difference between preaching with urgency and imminence and just flat out spurning the grace of God. God is merciful, and in His kindness we run to Him, not in fear of His wrath. Now, the Lord does indeed command repentance. Hell is real, judgment is imminent, and God is unfathomably kind. You need to hear the warning, and then we need to see the kindness of God through ages past, the kindness of God at the cross, the kindness of God even now that stands ready to save. And this is how we preach urgently. Seeing the steadfast, loving kindness of God should make us run to him all on its own. There are no other gods who will ever be this kind and patient to us. There are no idols we can fashion out of ourselves who will love sinners like this. Even when we try to play the role of God, we aren't even kind enough to ourselves because we try to take the labors of our own hands and and make our work something profitable. And we're hard on ourselves because we want something to show for. But God preaches grace to us, kindness to us. And with each day of grace that passes by, we know we are getting closer to the fixed day of judgment. Which means, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, your time of of mercy is running out. Your time of God's kindness and compassion is running out. While it is still called today, Call on him who stands ready to save you. He's been patient with you all these years. Come to Christ and don't delay another moment. And if you are already in Jesus, this means your days are numbered. There's a day fixed in which he will judge the living and the dead. He will judge the whole world. So don't waste whatever time you have left. God's judgment is imminent. That means we're in the last days. What are you doing with the last days you've got? What are you doing? How are you spending your time? Use them wisely for the glory of God and the Great Commission. Because the next part tells us how far-reaching God's judgment is. He commands all people everywhere to repent because, verse 31, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. I think the world pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Will he judge the non-believer? Yes. Will he judge the believer? Yes. Will he judge kings and presidents and rulers? Will he judge the poor and needy? Will he judge the living? Will he judge the dead? He will judge all the world. The entire cosmos, all of life, every tribe, tongue, and nation from smallest to most powerful will be personally judged by the living God. No one will be left out. I'm throwing a lot of Bible at you this morning because it is amazing how much the Bible talks about this. Matthew 16, Jesus said, the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Each person from eternity past, everybody. Romans 14, Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Who? All. Everybody. 1 Corinthians 3, 13. Each one's work 
will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It will be revealed, all of your work, good and bad, through your entire life. Hebrews 4, 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All can be seen, and all will give an account. Finally, Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. Everybody will either be great or small in that day. Standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You will be judged by God. Your spouse, your children, your parents, your neighbors, your friends, you will be judged by God. Every single detail of our lives is known by the Lord and will be reviewed by the Lord. And the standard of His judgment in which He comes to judge the world is righteousness. He comes to judge the world in righteousness, which means He does not judge the world according to our earthly standards of right and wrong, what the local law says, or what American crimes we did or did not commit. His standard is godliness, sinlessness, purity, and altogether goodness, which Romans 3 tells us He will not find a single one. For the Christian, we have Christ as our cover. He is the righteous one who robes us with purity, blamelessness. We might stand before the judgment seat of God as we've already been singing about today. But even in Christ, he will still review our lives and our actions matter after we are saved. As far as damnation goes, we will be covered by the righteousness of another credited to our account. But the vast majority of population on earth has no idea what's about to happen. That's just terrifying, isn't it? We, we sort of talk about this just tongue-in-cheek. Don't realize the weight um, of what the Bible teaches here. Without Christ, they will not receive mercy. So, who will tell them about the mercy of God? Who will tell them about the kindness of God? Who will tell them about the judgment to come? When Paul commissions Timothy to preach the gospel, he writes in his final letter with a solemn charge, 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, this is how you are to preach the word. Ready in and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with complete patience and teaching. You will never teach someone who will not stand before God and will stand before God soon. If we really believe that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in his righteousness, we need to plant more churches and reach, and reach unreached places, right? We, we need to partner with other churches and organizations to get missionaries into parts of the earth where there is no Bible and there is no Christian. Perhaps the Lord will even call on some of us here in Spindle, North Carolina to go to the nations 
and to preach the gospel to those who do not know about the mercy of God. And surely all of us here in Rutherford County are going to be passionate about sharing the good news with our neighbors until all of Rutherford County hears and knows. Who have you told lately? Who will you tell this week? Again, just as Timothy heard and so you hear, you will never stare into the eyes of someone who will not one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Will you tell them? As Spurgeon said, if they are going to go to hell, let it be over our dead bodies. Tell them. Number five, God's judgment is delegated. Delegated, verse 31. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Isn't it interesting here that God insists on giving this work of judgment to another? He appointed a man to do this judging. We sin against God. We sin against him and him alone. His wrath and his judgment is storing up since the day of the very first sin. But he has appointed someone else to judge the world in righteousness. The word appoint doesn't really mean to delegate. Um, it means to determine. It means to set in place, to mark out or define something. This is not just a handoff. Here, you take this judgment role. This is God's sovereign will ordaining this man with all authority in order to judge the world. He uniquely chose him before the foundations of the earth to judge the world, and none other would do. So who is he? Who is the one that will judge the world? You guys are tracking. Hebrews 5 says he was the one appointed by God as a son who learned obedience through suffering and being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all, designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Philippians 2 says that he was equal with God and in the form of God, and he took on the form of a servant and emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross, and therefore because of his suffering and death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Peter says to Cornelius just back a few chapters ago, chapter 10 in Caesarea, he has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. After making a once and for all sacrifice for sins, he rose from the dead and sat down at the right hand of God until all his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He left the glories of the Father. He never sinned. He died for sins. He rose from the dead. And the fact that he did rise from the dead and is at the Father's right hand is an assurance to the entire world that his judgment day will come. As sure as Jesus sits on the throne and the tomb is empty, so will come the judgment day. We can rest assured, he ain't joking. He will come. He is the Father's only choice to take the judgment seat. No one else could do. When Jesus revealed himself to the 500 plus that day and he gave the great commission and he publicly ascended back into the heavens, the angel said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. He's coming back. 
to judge the world in righteousness. <coughs> His judgment is divine. His judgment is patient. His judgment is imminent. His judgment is all-inclusive. And his judgment will be performed by the one who died and came back to life. The Lamb of God, slain for sin, the judge of the world. These are some basic characteristics that describe what God's judgment is like. There's a whole lot more that we could discuss. But this last one I'm going to give you is really not characteristic so much as it is a prophecy. One that will lay the foundation for all of life and what we can expect when facing the judgment seat of God. God's judgment is divisive. It will separate. The passage ends with three verses telling us what happened to the hearers of this message. It says in verse uh, 32, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagai and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So three kinds of people here. Some mocked. Others said, I'll think about it. And then a third very small group said, we will follow. Every person in this room is or has been in one of these three camps. Mocking considering or repenting. This describes everyone on earth today. The gospel divides us, and God's judgment will finally divide us. No more to be reunited. I want to end this sermon again with a very serious prophecy concerning every soul. According to God, here is what you can expect on the last day. Every human being will be humbled. We will see God's glory in light of our sin accurately for the first time ever. Everybody. And it will be utterly humbling. We will be surprised. Repeated theme of this judgment day is that it will come like a thief in the night. We will not expect it. Whether we are in the ICU for three weeks and finally close our eyes, or whether the Lord returns in the middle of the night, we will not see it coming. We'll be surprised. Third, what will happen is we will give an account. Even to the last word we speak, Matthew 12 says, Jesus said on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word. Every single detail of your life will be reviewed. Nothing will be left out. Not a single word you ever spoke. This is, this is weighty. It should give us much pause, but there's still more. And everything that comes next is what will finally divide us. First, for the Christian, we will receive rest. I've got these on a slide here, I think. We will receive rest. Revelation 14, 13 says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. We will receive the glorious rest because Jesus has done the work and his everlasting arms will carry us in his bosom 
forever. There will be no rest in the grave. There will only be rest in Christ. For the unbeliever, this means that they will experience eternal unrest. Eternal unrest. You will enter into hell, into a state of continual turmoil and havoc. You will never rest in peace. Secondly, for the Christian, we will have confirmation. Our faith will be turned to sight. Everything that we believed and hoped for will be finally before us in visible sight. We will see him and be made like him in all of his glory. We will see him at the right hand of God. He will stand to our aid and he will welcome us, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. We will be confirmed. For the unbeliever, however, you will be severely disappointed. Christ himself will review your life and say to you, I don't see anything recognizable. I never knew you. Depart from me. Number three, for the Christian, you'll be vindicated. All of the persecution that you endured on this earth, all of the hatred from those who were against you, will be remembered. God will vindicate you. This means a great deal for martyrs, those whose suffering is a little different from ours. But for all of us who endure suffering at the name of Jesus, will be vindicated, which means then for the unbeliever, you will receive his vengeance. Every hateful thing that you ever did or said to an unbeliever or to a believer was done unto Christ, and Christ will not forget it on the day of judgment. Our vindication is the vengeance against the ungodly. Third, for the, or fourth, for the Christian, you will be uniquely rewarded. Rewarded. It can be difficult for us to precisely interpret what heavenly rewards may look like, and I won't get into all that, but I will say there will be varying degrees of what these rewards are and what they will look like. None of them are meritorious. None of them are deserving of salvation. These are a song of God's goodness singing over us for all of eternity, an anthem of well-dones, boasting still in Christ who made it possible for any good thing we ever did. And for the unbeliever, they will too be rewarded, but not rewarded in like ways. They will be rewarded with justice. They will receive the due penalty for their sin. Fifth, in Christ, you will be reunited with all those who died in faith. Oh, what singing, oh, what shouting on that happy morning when we all shall rise. It's hard for us to really calculate the impact of this reunion and the sound of praise that will come for all those who died in Christ be together again this is a clear teaching of the bible it won't be the focal point of heaven but it will be nonetheless glorious and for the unbeliever there will be no reunion there will be eternal separation both from god and from all those in christ that they knew on earth one of the greatest pains of hell may not be the fiery flames in the lake of fire but the long aches of loneliness and isolation from friends and family that they will never see again. Sixth, for every believer, we can expect perfect love forever and always. Every tear will be wiped away. The thorns will no more infest the ground. We will love each other perfectly, 
Christ himself will be our loving Lord and King, and we will receive true selfless love and kindness that we only saw a glimpse of in this age. We will love our spouse and our children and our friends and our family more than we ever began to love them on earth. Because Christ is the one propelling that love. For the unbeliever, there will only be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be no one to wipe away their tears. And the anger of other souls who were cast into the outer darkness will continually burn in rage against one another. It will be a place of severe hatred. And finally, this last one. For those in Christ, we will experience eternal joy in worshiping the God that we were made to know and love. The garden restored. Revelation 19 says, And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is her righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed, happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. To be forever and always blessed in the presence of God. This is our hope. This is our eternal state that awaits. For the rest, it will be again the most dreadful opposite. It will be a sentence of sure sorrows with no chance of repentance or return. So friends, what will you do? Will you mock the resurrection? Will you put these things aside and deal with them another day? Or will you repent and believe in the gospel before he comes to judge the world in righteousness? Here's how Edwards ended his famous sermon and how I will end mine. Now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in, and are now happy, in a happy state, with their hearts filled with love to Him who has loved them and washed them from their sins and in His own blood, and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind at such a day and see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing. To see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and to howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of those who are flocking from day to day to Christ. Beloved, here is our extraordinary opportunity of mercy. Is your soul not as precious as theirs? Jesus believes it is, and he would have your soul this very moment. Believe on him and be blessed.
all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sober reminder, the promise of your imminent return, which gives us hope this Easter. As sure as Jesus is raised from the dead, so surely will you return. <clears throat> and it will be a great day of joy and also a great day of weeping. I pray that we would think hard about our lives, our actions, our motives, our idols. We worship Christ and Christ alone. If there any be among us that is in a sad condition, such as once we were all in, anybody here is sort of wavering and setting these things aside for another day, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, and they'd call on you and you'd save them. For all of us, Father, I pray that we would work for the Great Commission, because there is a day fixed, and your mercy is running out. May we proclaim with boldness and with joy the kindness and mercy of God until that day comes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.